This is Back to Excitement with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 140. My name is Arvind. Join me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooliman? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. I uh, can't complain. Just uh, finishing up the moving process, hopefully by the end of this week. And then I will uh, have moved. I will be in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that this is the absolute worst time to move in the history of the world or anything, but it is... Perhaps less than ideal. You got a lot of hurdles yeah, to I mean, move over, huh? I, I sincerely hope this is not uh, advice that ever ends up being useful for someone past this year, past this summer even. But if you ever have to move countries in a pandemic, just don't. Yeah, just may- maybe don't do that at all. Yeah. It's, and, uh, I mean, I, I, I hope to God that we never have to consider the, you know, the back half of that sentence again. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, I really would prefer this to be a one-time thing. Mm. It is already very clear to me that this is going to be the thing that we complain about to our grandchildren way in the distant future, and hopefully that's all it is. And they have no idea what we're really talking about. So, Yeah. Um, So, another thing that we will probably complain to our grandchildren about, just in general, is the Toronto Maple Leafs. (laughs) There's almost no way we won't, yeah. Yeah, but to be fair to them, they've been doing a good job of making those complaints a little less valid these past... um, past few days especially they you know after a small uh slump that was largely goaltending fueled they've turned things around and they, they've won uh, a few in a row now yeah actually can i just say this as an aside and we don't have to talk about the vancouver games after this but every time the leafs have some sort of loss in remotely unusual circumstances people want it to be the david ayers game again or the it was for one game again and they really force it and I think on this podcast, we often find ourselves in the position of being downers, rain clouds, voices of unpleasant reason. On this one, it's like, no, the Leafs got goalied. Braden Holtby stood on his head, and that's it. And I do not really feel any kind of way about that game. That's different from how I felt about the Toronto Maple Leafs beforehand. They got beat by a hot goalie the way that any team in the history of the sport can. And that's all there is to it. They played fine. So, yeah. Uh, I am explicitly saying do not worry about that Vancouver game. Or either of those Vancouver games for that matter. Right. The thing about the David Ayers game is like, we're not topping it. No. That was crazy. It was ridiculous. It was a great narrative. I think, you know, people have gone out of their way to make jokes about it. But let's be real. That was a hell of an event. Yes, they absolutely should make jokes about yeah, it. Yeah, like, that, like that's it, how that's it is. That's completely justified. Mm-hmm. You gotta I, give credit where it's due. That was a crazy thing to have happen. It had a likable guy at the center of it. It was a heroic narrative. Fine. The Leafs getting goalied by Braden Holtby is one of the most ordinary things that could happen in the sport. It wasn't even one of the Leafs' worst... It wasn't even the Leafs' worst loss to a bad Canadian team this year. Like, the, the it was 5-1 to Ottawa was worse. Yeah, it wasn't even close, for my money. And everyone was like, oh, well, the Canucks have just come back. That's admirable on the Canucks' end. Credit where it's due. Good showing. They kind of just hung in there and played, you know, like a passable hockey game. And again, they got great goaltending. But the Leafs were the better team by a large margin. 
From what I remember, the, it was 5-1 game. Like, that wasn't a smash and grab. They, the Sens legit just outplayed the Leafs in the back half of the game. Yes, it was crazy. Uh, and I hesitate to impute psychological motives. And I think that the hysteria of, like, the last two days after that game looks very silly now because everyone forgot about it in a week. But it did really feel like the Leafs were thinking, oh my god, here we go again. Like, they literally were just hanging on for dear life and praying that this would be enough. And that's a good recipe to lose. And I, I know that I'm armchair psychoanalyzing from here, but I really do feel like they got a little bit leery. But yeah, since then, I haven't had that thought too many times, so that's a positive. <laughs> mm-hmm. And in the games against the Jets, I think the Leafs have played pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. And Sheldon Keefe agreed. He, he called the four... Well, sorry, the... the the first game, I forget what the score, but that was that was five three. I want to say the mm-hmm. five three win. He said that was you know one of our most complete games of the year. Yesterday, uh, the Leafs had a kind of mediocre first period. I thought where the Jets were were generating a lot of odd man rushes in part because the Leafs forwards were not being quick enough in recognizing, um, you know that they don't have the puck and they need to be playing above the puck. And then you know you do that with Nick Eaters on the ice and it's a problem. Mm-hmm. But you know second period and beyond the Leafs' habits and transition got a lot better. Um, the the Jets stopped getting those easy rushes, and part of those easy rushes was just luck, where, you know, sometimes the player positioning makes, it makes you know, the on-ice situation more amenable to that. Um, but yeah, the Leafs, the Leafs played very well, and it was a surprisingly chippy game as well. Yeah, we aren't used to the Leafs being in these kind of nasty, mean-spirited exchanges, or at least not since the playoff series in the Boston Bruins where Nazem Kadri gets suspended for doing something that 15 other guys have done. But, yeah, it was uh, a little bit chippy out there. And the Jets seem to take exception to the Leafs doing a a few things. You know, I I gotta tell you, I don't know what they're going on about. I think they're full of shit, frankly. (laughs) That's my opinion. Right, so Paul Paul Maurice gave, was asked about... um the Leafs possibly being a dirty team. And he, did, he, you know, kind of just cleverly said, well, no, but actually, yes. Yeah. <laughs> More or less. And, you, you know, say what he, you will about Maurice. He's like a witty guy at how yeah. to operate in a press conference. He's always yeah. been good at that. And I think it's been a useful professional skill for him, right? It's yeah, absolutely. Press. He, 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 my read of it was like, I'm not going to call them dirty, but I'm not going to not call them dirty. Yeah, why do any favors? You're yeah. playing them possibly in the playoffs, certainly in the next couple of days. So, yeah, see if he, you can get the refs to look at them a little bit more closely. But still, he's full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I don't really think either team is particularly dirty by any no. broader NHL standards. Like, I think both teams have some grease balls. I think almost every team does. Yeah, but... but... Th- this game started getting... I guess in part because of... Um, stuff that happened in the first game, started a little, as you said, chippy, and then progressed into, like, a blood feud between Nick Eaters and Joe Thornton, which was really weird. Yeah, of all the guys you would have picked to do that, eh? I mean... Well, Eaters is a bit of a hot... Like, he's a bit of a hothead. He, he gets under people's skin. I have no idea why. Maybe he just talks mad shit on the ice. But, like, he's... He, from time to time, some guy will just, like, lose his absolute shit at Eaters. Yeah. And in fairness, Joe Thornton has been in his share of dust-ups. And he's also yeah. a big boy. Like, even at his age, you do not want to go toe-to-toe with Joe Thornton if you're just 
a regular hockey player because he's huge. Yeah, he has, and he has like the old man strength boost. Mm. He will make himself your dad. You gotta watch it. Does he have kids? He might have the dad strength and old man strength like multiplier. Um, you know what? I know he's um he's married because he met his wife uh in Switzerland during the first lockout in two thousand five. So maybe. But yeah, um, regardless, the the finer points of the different strength multipliers that Joe Thornton has aside, um, <laughs> there, there, there was there was a lot going on. You had um, Blake Weider more or less tried to paste Sandine on a hard uh, Rasmus Sandine on a hard forecheck. Sandine gave him a reverse hit, which was I think in almost everyone's view clean, but had the unfortunate outcome of Weider basically hitting, getting his head hit on the ice, uh, and Weider yeah. had just come back from a concussion, so you obviously never really want to see that. Um, and the Jets seemingly, the Jets players, I should say, seemingly took exception to that because, you know, not long after, Matthew Perot uh, hit a pretty nasty elbow on Tavares. Like, it seemed quite blatant. If Tavares was hurt, that would be a suspension, which mm-hmm. is a dumb way to look at things, but that's the way the NHL does it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember after the second period, I forget who, someone took a, a run at Matthews, like a good you know, half second to full second after the buzzer had gone. So they, they, they were, they were yeah. really trying to kind of up the ante as, 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 as revenge. Uh, and the Leafs played ball, more or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they kind of returned the favor. Obviously, in the first game, you had, you know, Wayne Simmons walking the dog on Pierre-Luc Dubois after he uh, ran into Campbell. And I don't want to pretend like the Leafs are like innocent bystanders in this too. Like they're 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 doing you know their share of greasy shit. Like yeah, well um, I, I mean Thornton it was like hit. a moderately chippy hockey game. Yeah. But like in, in in the first game, Thornton had a bad hit on who was it? I forget whose hit was on. Um, that was a fine and probably should have been a suspension in, in like mm. a normal in a in a reasonable NHL. Um, Galchenyuk hit Adam Lowry, I believe, in the mm. head. I think that was mostly unintentional, but still. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, first of all, the Joe Thornton hit was a was a height differential thing as much as anything. Like right, he, but he hit him, but he's six four, and he hit a guy who was five ten. Yeah, but you have to be responsible for that, right? Like we see this yeah. thing with Zdeno Chara. Yeah, I know, and Zdeno Chara has that height differential on everybody in the world, but I don't know. I have to tell you, I'm gonna indulge my own old man prerogatives here, and say I remember actually chippy games, like actually really physical playoff series. Like the Leafs versus the Islanders in the early 2000s or something like that. And I'm sorry, this was like, uh, you know, a cupcake exchange compared to that. Like, yes, that's inarguably true. Yeah. Right? But and I know, as like, far as regular season games go, in a, in a season where there's not, I mean, in a point of the season where for these two teams, there is not that much on the line. Mm-hmm. It was a lot more physical than you would otherwise expect. Yeah, I think so. And I think that there's a certain amount of peacocking going on because they anticipate they might run into each other in the playoffs and they want to set a tone, some intimidation. They want it to be clear, hey, we're not backing down from you, buddy. It's just, it spirals into some of this nonsense about who is and isn't a dirty team when the truth is neither of these teams is especially dirty or especially physical at this point. Like a few years ago, who would you have said were the most physical players on either of these teams? They would have been Dustin Bufflin and Nazem Kadri, and they're both gone. You know, and I don't think that anyone of a comparable level of physical provocation has replaced them. So, yeah, I do not think that this is a heavyweight bout or anything. I did see a few people 
trying to spin the Rasmus Sandin hit into being somehow dirty or something. And then Blake Wheeler gave a quote saying, well, the refs didn't call it, so I guess it wasn't illegal or something similar to that, which is like, man, fuck off. Like, I'm sorry, but that was a totally fine hit. When you're going for a hit like that, heavy on a guy, you've zeroed in on him, and he stands you up, it's like, yeah, that's physical hockey. That's how it goes. Don't dish also, it out if you can't take it. Yeah, it's also probably, one, there's probably a little bit of an embarrassment factor there. Like, Sandin yeah. is not big. No. Um, two, it seems obvious that Weider just was not expecting Sandin to brace him like that. Like, he, he was not expecting resistance, right? Anyone who's done any sort of physical sport knows that the hits you don't see coming hurt you the most yes absolutely and you know maybe it's just his feelings are hurt because he got annihilated by rasmus sandin's butt but the fact remains that was fine and so i think that it's a a credit to rasmus sandin now to be clear i don't wish any ill on black wheeler he seems like generally a fine guy and a good player um i hope that he's fine and uninjured i just was like it, this all had the air of, like, kind of kids who are too small to really hurt each other, almost. Kind of sparring in a uh, in a bit of a spitting match. Like, I know that there are obviously players who can injure each other. You know, these are all big, grown men. But it's like, neither of these teams really is of the type for this kind of posturing. And it, it all just seemed a bit silly to me. Anyway, we'll see if it plays out. If they get into a series, hey, blood runs high... Um, it's always possible for it to bloom into something more physical. But this definitely seemed like a lot of posturing, I'm going to say. Yeah, so, I mean, part of the reason we're discussing this now is because we're at the point of the season where there's really nothing else to discuss. We are in a holding pattern until the playoffs. Yes. Right? Like, it, it, it's, it's hard to express just how meaningless these last eight games are for the Leafs, except for, like, maybe a handful of minor interesting things yes um the Leafs haven't quite clinched the playoff spot yet but they are very very close and I know you're a Toronto Maple Leafs fan possibly if you're listening to this and you're thinking okay but I can see scenarios where they lose every single one of their games if the Leafs lose every game like all of their remaining eight they go zero and eight um you still need Vancouver and Montreal to get it like an 80% points percentage to catch them. And they both have to do it to knock the Leafs all the way out of the playoffs. And it's basically not possible for the reason you say Montreal and Vancouver, not like say Montreal and Calgary, is because Montreal and Calgary play too many times for that to both happen. Yeah, and well, Calgary can't even catch us anymore. Oh, okay, true. Yeah, so they, true. they've actually... More valid point. <laughs> ...just fallen off. But yeah, there's also an issue there of confluence. Like... All of the teams have to finish ahead of Toronto, right? So all of Winnipeg, Edmonton, uh, Vancouver, and Montreal have to catch them to bump them all the way out because there are four spots and five teams competing for them, basically, uh, as far as we're concerned. And so the fact that Edmonton and Vancouver play like a million times, if Vancouver wipes out Edmonton in those games, that decreases the chance that Edmonton will catch us. Anyway, the point is, if the Leafs win a couple more, this is all moot. First seed isn't locked up yet, but... Sweeping two against the Jets really helped. Like, the Leafs have a pretty good margin on it, and if they just play okay the rest of the way, that should be fine. So, I know that we all anticipate the worst. We're all thinking at any moment the Leafs could totally implode because we have experience of them doing that. But realistically speaking, 
if this were any other team and we weren't that emotionally invested, we would say, yeah, the Leafs are going to cruise to the first seed and it's time to look to the playoffs. But we still have these eight games. And we thought, okay, what things are we going to watch in these eight games besides, you know, hoping the Leafs don't totally lose out uh, to maintain our interest, to prep us for the playoffs, to see what the trends are? Well, actually, before, before we do mm-hmm. that, um, there is something that uh, you, you put up in your notes, and I think it's actually worth a bit of discussion. Yes. And uh, while we're on the playoff topic, it's about Montreal. Yeah, well, so uh, we both analyzed potential playoff matchups a few weeks back, and we were like, okay, Montreal maybe doesn't look so hot from the record, but they're scary. They will be good. They are killing it 5v5. And then Montreal was like, hey, fuck you guys. We're going to implode. Montreal's like, I took that person. <laughs> when now, they said I was a threat, I took that person. <laughs> we gave them too much credit, and they were not having it. So, first of all, it has to be said they've lost Brennan Gallagher, who was their best player, I think, by a lot, frankly. Like, they do not have a lot of very good forwards besides him. And I think that that's clearly hurt them a whole bunch. That said... Wow. I did not anticipate quite how rough it's been. And you see, you might say, hey, you guys are slaves to the stats. That's why they misled you. Well, what happened is since March 1st, the Habs are 15th in XG. And that's like just middling. But one, they're not that great at other things. Like dominating 5v5 play was their whole thing, as we talked mm. about. But they had to crater pretty hard because they were killing it up to that point. And again, Gallagher is a huge part of that because he gets a ton of chances from point-blank range. Right. And I think the other thing that Gallagher really helps with is that, you know, it's like this cascading effect. When you lose a top guy, now mm. suddenly everyone else is playing a bit more than they should. Yes. Right? And when you get that top guy back, everyone goes everyone goes back into a, a spot in the lineup where they might be a little bit overqualified for it. That was the whole thing with the Hams. They have, like, you know, one like a good top line, which is fueled in part by, by Gallagher. And then a lot of, like a lot of pretty league average players throughout, which sounds like a, an insult, but it's not because, you know, league average is much better than the average third or fourth liner. Or not much better, but it's better than the average third or fourth liner. Yeah, their whole thing was, okay, we're going to put up margins on you because we have depth. And they'll have a first line that'll slow the game down and beat you up that way. And so with Gallagher gone, a lot of things go wrong. Uh, Carey Price has also been out recently. And, you know, with no disrespect to him personally, and wishing him the best for his health. Uh, They can certainly survive that loss. Jake Allen has been better this year. But they're really struggling, and they're still very probably going to make the playoffs. But they've made it more interesting than it ever should have been. Right. Now, the caveats to their bad XG numbers are bad for them over the past, you know, two months almost. Mm -hmm. Their Corsi is still fifth in the league. Yeah. Their scoring chance percentage is still, um, I can just check that now, actually. Their scoring chance percentage is still 7th. Right. It's just their XG and, I guess, their goals for that look bad. So it might be the case that, like, they're they're clearly getting in the offensive zone enough, and those last kind of little steps that take you from good chances to great chances just might not be there. Right. But this is always the objection to Montreal is, okay— you own the puck, you own the offensive zone, but you don't get the puck in the net at the last step. And one of the guys who was best at that is Brennan Gallagher, of course, because he sits on the, door, the doorstep 
hacks the puck in. And it's certainly glaring when he's not there that they don't have as many people who are good at that. But I'm still kind of taken aback that it is actually this rough. It, it certainly gives me some doubt. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe my prior is too strong. Yeah. But given that XG is the only number of theirs that looks bad in this time stretch, like in terms of 5-on-5 play, I, I still... Like, to, to me, this might signify that they're, st- they're playing still relatively fine, but there might be a little bad luck or a little, you know, tactical adjustment that's resulting in them not getting the chances that go... The chances that reflect um, in high XG, even though they're getting, you know, a good amount of scoring chances, for example, right? Just something I say often, but, like, we often talk about Corsi and XG as indicators of a team's success but they're also random quantities right mm-hmm. that a team might have some true kind of you can say they have some true latent ability to generate chances for or chances against or whatever and what we actually observe are, are random realizations of of those right that's kind of the, st- the statistical way to interpret this sort of stuff mm-hmm. so you can get just a run of bad form for for no other reason than you get you know some some negative some some unlucky dice rolls yeah. so to speak and obviously it's not that simple right it's not entirely randomness or whatever but the, the the point i'm trying to make here is that we don't want to overreact to to this as well especially when there are other indicators still look strong uh, at least to me that that's that's my that's my sort of um sort of thinking on the habs i, I still think that they're a, a rather strong team at five on five even though their xg numbers have have dipped because their other ones are still, you know, are still reasonable enough and still strong enough that I, I'm, I'm not fully confident in saying, oh, yeah, they're, they're just not as good a 5-on-5 five five team as we thought they were. I get that, and I think that that's true. Like, I'm not totally throwing out my prior where I kept saying, look, they're a very strong 5v5 team. I think they still can be, and when they get Gallagher back, which is anticipated to be game one of the playoffs, that's going to help. That's going to go a long way. But I do think that the objection to the Habs was always this, that they don't make that last step to putting the puck in the net. And so when things go wrong for them, and that starts being the blinking light on the dashboard, it does make me think that maybe there is something there. That like they're too reliant on particular ways of scoring. And... Without those, without a key player, they really suffer as a consequence. And we've always said, look, the big strength of this team is 5v5. That's what they have going for them. That's what's going to carry them. And so any damage to that strength is a problem for them because the other aspects of the game are less reliable. Like we've just said, okay, they're a good 5v5 team. Most of the game is 5v5. That's going to get them a long way. And it's true but as that strength decays a little bit, all those other things that they're bad at or that they're not great at start becoming more concerning. I, I'm not ruling them out. They still scare me round one, which is where I expect to see them. But I do think that this stretch does influence my overall opinion of how good a team they are. Oh, I mean, it, it should, right? Mm-hmm. Because we should always be kind of updating updating our priors based on based on what we see. Yeah. I'm, I'm just yeah. definitely not writing them off at this point. No. Just my, my final point on this. They're, they still, in terms of offense, 
over uh, the past two months. Mm-hmm. They're like seventh in scoring chances for and like 19th in expected goals for. So they're generating, for whatever reason, scoring chances that are not necessarily high XG. Right. Which is an interesting sort of thing. And it, it remains to be seen. Like, as we've talked about many times, over, longer sam- over larger samples, those two will, ranks will tend to go to one another. Right? And uh, over small samples, the deviation could be a result of many, many things. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so we, we shouldn't be overreactive either. Yeah, I think realistically we need to watch them more to understand why that deviation is, is, is occurring. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly worth noting, and if I was like a, a Habs fan or like certainly a member of the Habs coaching staff, that's something I, I it's my job to look into. Yeah, right? and you the Habs are it, kind of despairing right now, or the Habs fan base, anybody. Like, they yeah. are... Uh, they sound kind of like us, actually. <laughs> they <laughs> sound mean, very upset. The Habs fans are... are just as dramatic as Leafs fans, right? Maybe one of the only fan bases that can give us a run for their money, a run for our money, both in terms of size and drama. Yeah, they are way more like us than probably either fan base wants to admit. Mm, absolutely. Um, um, yeah, oh, um, something that might make you feel good if you just keep an eye on stats and stuff like that. During that period, I said the Habs were 15th in XG since March 1st, at least your second. And that's pretty good. I think that this is, again been something that maybe hasn't been pronounced upon because the goaltending has been kind of dicey. The Leafs have been playing really well in the, the <laughs> last few weeks. And Absolutely. I think that that's good. Not to be obvious here, but I I probably feel better about this team except goaltending, and obviously except the power play, uh, than I did to start the year. I My opinion of them has actually improved, even though I grant they're playing sort of softer competition in the North. So... Yeah, I'm a little optimistic, but we yeah. were going to talk about what things were going to be of interest in the last eight games. What things? Sorry, are what, one last thing I'm interrupting yep. you with. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. This is like um, Jimmy Kimmel uh, always interrupting before he can get to Matt Damon. Right? <laughs> uh, uh, ran out of time, Matt. Sorry. Yeah. So just on the final note on on the Habs and like I guess playoff implications, because of this Habs slide, it, it means. You know, if the Hams make it, they are most likely going to make it as the four seed, mm-hmm. which kind of changes the, which means that um, we are very likely to, to face them, more or less. Yes. Right? Um, now, it's been made a little bit less likely because now there's a shot that Calgary or Vancouver gets that four seed. Mm-hmm. But basically, um, you know, I, there's an 85% chance we face one of Montreal, Calgary, or Vancouver. And most of that 85% is taken up by Montreal. And then Calgary and Vancouver are kind of equal, both as kind of really outside shots. But if they do get in, we're almost certainly facing them. Right. And then Winnipeg, Edmonton are kind of lower uh, lower value amounts because, you know, some rather more dramatic reshuffling has to happen in order for, for us to do that. It, it would essentially be us falling to two uh, or... Uh, us falling to two and then, you know, being taken over at number one by Winnipeg or Edmonton and then we face whichever one of those guys is still in third. Yes. So that's about the bottom line there on the potential seeding. Again, I expect us to run into Montreal round one. Yeah. Yeah. So, Start bracing so. yourself for a, uh, a Leafs halves playoff series, which is okay. If we win, it'll be amazing. If we lose, I might have to crawl under a hole. Yeah. We might sort of cancel the, there. the pod. Honestly, we might just not acknowledge that there's a hockey team in Toronto ever again. Yeah, it's like it's like the third round. We're thinking, man, it's really weird how they, they just canceled the North Division playoffs. But, you know, 
<laughs> it sucks. Let's just talk about next year. Yeah, move forward with confidence. Yeah. Um, so, um, I'm afraid to set it up now. You're going to cut me off with some other information. <laughs> Nick Felino. What do we think about Nick Felino? He's appeared in a couple of games now. Um, mm-hmm. I've been whelmed by him, I guess. He, he has two points in two games. Uh, well, QED. That, that's pretty great. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them was an assist on an empty netter, but that's okay. The other one was an assist on effectively and also an empty netter, except it, it, was the one, it was the Marner goal yesterday that bumped off the stanchion and left Halbuck stranded. Yeah. <laughs> so he's very good at empty netters for Mitch Marner. Yeah. So I think he's been good. I don't think he's been dazzling. I think he's actually been almost exactly what we expected from Nick Foligno. He's competent. He's tough. He's versatile. He's not going to embarrass himself in that role. And I think if he's first line left wing until Zach Hyman gets back, that's terrific. He's as good as anybody there. I don't want him there over Zach Hyman because I think Zach Hyman is better. But I think that Foligno has done basically what we expected him to do in the earliest of going um everyone seems to like him that's nice you know he wore a a hat from the 93 leafs to a press conference that's very endearing he certainly knows how to uh (laughs) such low standards we have (laughs) he knows how to play to the gallery man it's an underrated skill but uh yeah i think that um He's doing what he's supposed to do so far, but we got him for the playoffs, first and foremost. And if he has a super memorable playoff moment, that's all anyone's going to care about. And also, I think he's leaving in the offseason to go back to Columbus, which, again, is fine. So, yeah, that's basically going to be it. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, yeah, I think it's, I think it's been interesting. Uh, the fit with Matthews and Marner is... Um, it's it's weird in a way because Felino is not a great passer. He's not a huge shot generator. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he tries to get to the front of that, but he's not as, as good as that at that as say Zach Hyman. So he really isn't, as you said, the the natural fit there. And I think when when we see Zach Zach Hyman return healthy, he's going to take that spot. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Felino's offensive game is is pretty average generally speaking right right so but to the extent that he has things that he's good at it, it, it's being on the cycle making simple plays to extend offenses on cycles which maybe makes him a more natural fit for, for john Tavares, who kind of does the same thing but with a lot more puck skills and, and skills in, in close quarter situations and finishing ability as well mm-hmm. right so maybe, maybe that's where we see him long term i have noticed some of his defensive acumen and it's been, you know, nothing dramatic or whatever, but I think in the first game against Winnipeg, the, the 5-3 game, towards the end, uh, there was, like, a loose puck uh, near, like, the left half boards. And Foligno kind of raced Pierre-Luc Dubois there and just out-muscled him and uh, made a, just a, a quick kind of poke back to the defense when we were able to clear it. It's a very minor play, but you, you see that happening. You're like, okay, you know what? There's a lot of Leafs wingers who are, if they're in the same spot as Felino, that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And you can see some of the value there as a result. Already, he's been used by Sheldon Keith on basically first unit penalty kill in uh, late and close game uh, situations, right? He, he's Keith has just kind of parked the Matthews line out there, and I think 
his comfort with Felino in defending a lead has has emboldened him to do that. So it's been good in some ways, but yeah, he hasn't you know lit the world on fire or anything like that. I, I think his style of play and his abilities are always going to be kind of on the quieter side. Yes, and and yeah. sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say people are going to point that out because Taylor Hall has six points in seven games, uh, and that's how it goes. But I do think that Felino brings valuable things to the lineup. I think that he is useful, and I think that he's so far looked like the player that the Leafs thought they were acquiring. It was expensive to get him, and I I don't think anyone should expect him to light the world on fire. Like, the fact right. that he has two assists on goals where he had very little that he actually has to contribute is about right, but uh, I've been encouraged, certainly. I think your point is well taken about how he, he does something that maybe a lot of Leaf wingers don't do. And I do think that you can see him adding a different element. This is really, and Dom Lachishan talked about this, this, is, this acquisition is really a test of the value of fit as much as anything. Like, he's a decent player, but we paid what we did for him because we think he's a decent player who fits exactly into what we need. And so, moments like this where you see him do something that maybe doesn't happen without him, that's the most encouraging thing. Uh, that he can contribute, I think. Yeah, without getting into whether it would have been smarter to get, say, Taylor Hall, right, for, for a similar price or whatever, uh, you know, th- th- that's a separate question. Uh, with Felino, yeah, it's, it's about what does he bring going forward. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things that I think we both want to watch over these next few games is really where he where he lines up, Right. If, if we're fairly convinced that Zach Hyman's going to return to the first line, well, the two spots remaining are with um, Tavares and Nylander on the second line or with uh, uh, Mikheyev and Kerfoot on the third. Mm-hmm. And there's two, I guess, rather different theories of, of what, what could lead him to either one of those two spots, right? The If he plays with Tavares and Nylander, it's like, okay, so it, it's the same idea as, as having him with, with Matthews and Marner. It's like, we're going to give this this these two really skilled forwards, a strong defensive conscience who, you know, might struggle a bit to play off them to some degree, mm-hmm. but is going to um, really bolster their ability to survive shifts in the defensive zone, who's going to help them uh, when they do turn the puck over in the offensive zone with, you know, not getting caught too deep and, and playing good transition defense, things like that. And you can see that working. Right. Uh, it does leave Alex Galchenyuk a bit left out in the cold because then do you put him on the third line, right? Well, that's he's not a natural fit for that because that third line is probably going to get the most defensive usage of, of any of any line going forward, right? Because the Leafs' fourth line of Spezza, currently Spezza Thornton and Adam Brooks, who is another person we'll discuss, mm-hmm. is an offensive fourth line. You know, you're, you're, I don't want to speak about usage too absolutely here because it's, it's not as if, you know, you're always going to play one line in the defensive zone or one line in the offensive zone or whatever. But... You know, it doesn't make sense to put Galchenyuk on a line where you can't use what he's good at, which is his high-level skill and processing and ability to make use of his teammates. Right, and that's something that gives me a lot of pause because I think that everyone's enjoyed Alex Galchenyuk the story, and I think that he's been legitimately impressive. He showed more than I thought he still had in him, and he's made it clear that he can be effective 
as the third banana on a offensive line. But he didn't show anything defensive in this sample that makes you change your your previous opinion of his defense, which is universally agreed to be kind of bad. And I don't think that it's because he doesn't want to be good at defense. I think that he's just not all that good at it. And at his age, we shouldn't assume that he's going to get good at it. So I do think that if you displace Alex Galchenyuk from that second line role and you don't put him with Matthews and Marner, presumably, uh, I'm not sure that I have a spot for him, honestly. And based on, you know, his fairly respectable production so far that might seem crazy but i i don't think that he really fits anywhere because i don't trust him to carry a line offensively by himself to turn it into an offensive line and i certainly don't trust him to play defense at a high level on a third line i i do find myself thinking that felino once everyone is back and healthy hopefully does end up on the third line mostly because of that because you can make a case for felino galchenyuk either of them on the Tavares line, but I don't think you can make a cha- uh, case for Galchenyuk on the third line. Right, it becomes a, 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 a case of kind of marginal value. Where, where do the Leafs benefit most from Felino playing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they have... With, with Galchenyuk, that uh, tavares Ender pairing has been good enough, so maybe you say, okay, I'll keep them being good enough and try, use Felino to bolster an area of, of significant weakness. Now, it's not guaranteed that it works out like that. You know, we could see... Keith just say, okay, Alex, thanks for, you know, your work deputizing here. We'll, we'll go with a different, we'll go with a different, you know, lineup moving forward where Felino does play on that second line. And maybe we see Pierre Engvall playing wing on the third line instead. Yes. Although uh, the fact that Pierre Engvall is currently getting displaced by Adam Brooks is a point of interest. Well, to me, that says more about Keith not trusting Engvall at center, perhaps for the face-off reasons that we've discussed uh you know, a, a few times on the pod. Mm-hmm. But if it's a question of a winger, maybe that gets Engvall back in the lineup. But, I mean, the thing is, the Leafs have tons of options now. Right. Right? They have a lot of different... Um, they have a lot of different permutations of, of lines that could work, and I'm sure that makes Keith's mad scientist heart very happy. <laughs> um, if we keep the lineup as is... Um, so we, we keep Engvall out of the lineup. I, I think what makes the most sense is to put Felino on the third line. And the reason I say that is because the third line has been kind of struggling all year. And and by that, I mean, I should be more specific when I say that. I'm the play, Two of the players who have most often been associated with the Leafs' third line have struggled all year. At 5-on-5, five five, that's Ilya Mikheyev and Alex Kerfoot. Right. In minutes where they are with a Leafs star forward or high-end forward, whether that be, you know, John Tavares, William Nylander, or uh, Zach Hyman as part of like the hem line, mm-hmm. uh, or, or you know at times Hyman, Kerfoot, Mikheyev as well. Uh, aside from those moments, they have not been good. In those moments, they they've been they've been they've had decent results. Although in Mikheyev's case with Tavares and Nylander, not as not the results you want from you know a line where you're spending a lot of money and you expect kind of first line results. But without them, it's it's been quite disastrous at times, right? And this is a point I've seen a few people make. Most recently, Ian Tulak. So, yeah, if you put all that together, you end up trying to balance a lineup with all of these different options. With the caveat here, injuries often make these decisions for you. Like, the conversation that we're having now was not the conversation that we would have been having 
Uh, Zach Hyman remained healthy. And so we're assuming he'll be back, thank God. But, you know, someone else could go down at some point, And then suddenly you don't have much of a choice. But it is good that we're starting from a position of lots of forward depth. Lots of guys who can slot in credibly at different places. And lots of options for keep the mad scientist. I, I also do want to say, you know, you don't let Alex Galchenyuk dictate the formation of the lineup. He's not that Absolutely. important. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that this arrangement works rather well if you have Hyman, Galchenyuk, Foligno as the left wings in that order. But if you really think, you know, hey, I want Foligno there, then you bump Galchenyuk and you do something else. And right. so, and, and, yeah. And you can see why that would happen. I mean, in the Eater's goal yesterday, um, I wouldn't say that's entirely Galchenyuk's fault, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a relatively nondescript play that turned it into a three-on-two in part because he stopped moving his feet, uh, you know, as he crossed the red line going back defensively, mm-hmm. right? A couple of Leafs got um, caught a little bit deep and then they weren't able to make it back. And the Jets with a three-on-two rush, with, with Naginers on the ice especially, are really, really dangerous. And maybe Keith sees that and thinks, okay, well, in the playoffs, you know, we're, we're going to be facing possibly the Jets. We're going to be facing a second line that has Leon Dreisaitl on it, possibly. Mm-hmm. Right? Um and Galchenyuk's defensive frailty might be something that's hard to stomach. And again, this is the point I've seen Ian make a couple times, so I want to credit him for this. Um, and Justin Bourne has made it as well. You know, coaches inherently are, are also risk-averse, right? They, they see that, and that's going to stick in their mind a little bit more than some of the connective tissue plays that Galchenyuk makes in the offensive zone. It's worth noting, Alex Galchenyuk has washed out of several teams in the last couple of years. And... If you ask me to guess why, I'm sure his defensive frailties were a big factor. And so, I, yeah, I, I like him there. I like him at the second line left wing. I'm not married to it. And I, I think the fact that we got a kind of anti-Galchenyuk almost, uh, a very solid all-around defensive left winger, is, is interesting there, that we made that choice. Um... By and large, I'm fine with Felino to start. Like, he's he's shown about what I would have expected. It's tentative. I'm not going to cast some final judgment on the trade based on it, because, uh, again, this is playoff-oriented, and, well, that's hugely determined by luck. That's where this is going to be judged. So, we'll see. But it'll be worth seeing how is he used... How has he moved around? Do we see more of him on the third line? Do we see him used for particular purposes? That might give us some insight into how Keefe is seeing things playing out. Because again, this should be a perfect opportunity for Keefe to try stuff. So. Yeah. Uh, do you want to move on to Rasmus Sandin? Uh, I want to just to make one note about Keefe trying stuff. Yep. This is one of those things where I, I fully agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is just me pointing out a bad habit of my, of, of mine. Where I'll say, yeah, well, the Leafs will definitely try stuff. And then Keefe will try something kind of dumb. And I'm like, wait, no, not like that. <laughs> <laughs> try and things it, that I want is what I'm saying. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I, I, it's a habit I have to get out of. Because otherwise I'm just saying, do the things I want. Be my avatar as a coach. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it's, it's something noticeable. Because, yeah, Keefe does experiment a lot. And some of those I will, you know, charitably describe as, you know, I'm not sure why you would do that. Yeah. He, uh, well... I mean, there's a fine line between the ridiculous and the sublime, I guess. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. you have to to risk looking stupid to find something. I, I think the Hyman-Engvall-Mikheyev line is probably a decent example. 
I didn't think that would work. And it worked better than I expected. So, yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. Keith's, you know, Keith's mad scientist tinkerings are something that we, we should hopefully see a little bit, you know, uh, in, the next, in the next two weeks or so to the end of the regular season. Yeah. Just don't put John Tavares, Austin Matthews, and Mitch Marner out as a 5v5 line any time before, like, the last three minutes. I don't want to see that silly thing again. That annoyed me a lot. Why did it annoy you so much? It seems to me like the whole point of the Toronto Maple Leafs is that you have two first lines. And we traded that for one somewhat better first line in the most important game of our season. And it didn't work. And, you know, if you're the Columbus Blue Jackets and you sort of focus all your defensive energy to, okay, batten down the hatches, we got to hang on while these guys are on, and then things open up for us. It just seems to me like a kind of imbalance that doesn't play out. Maybe I'm just too in love with the idea of two first lines because that's how I perceive of the Leafs as a strong team. But it seemed to me like we threw away our biggest strength. I think that makes sense. I just wanted to get your, like, some more detailed thoughts on it. Fair enough, yeah. Um, You know, I mean, that said, if it wins in the game five and anything could happen, then so maybe I have a different perspective on it, but... I, I don't want to see that particular experiment again. Um, so we have our cool, shiny young player who everyone is excited about, and we've already referenced him once because he reverse hit Blake Wheeler into the Shadow Realm. It's Rasmus Sandin. Mm-hmm. Sandin has looked, uh, I think, good. Uh, again, we're going to have the Travis Dermott issue of like, mm-hmm. okay, cool, he's, you know, he, he, he can play third, shelter third pair of minutes. Although, you know, it must be said, Sandin was not that good in the NHL in his previous stint. He hadn't really played competitive hockey in almost a, in a year, maybe even more than a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, putting him in the shallow end is absolutely the right thing to do at, at, the, at the start. Uh, granted, you know, he, his two games are against the Jets. Not a, not a strong team at 5-on-5, five five, especially when you get below the forward lines that have really strong shooting skill can really hurt you. Mm-hmm. But I thought Sandin looked, you know, solid. Uh, there, there, there was a couple of moments where you notice his lack of super high-end foot speed, which which is, I guess, um, you know, he, he's not a big defenseman. He's not tiny either. He's like 5'11 or something. Yeah. Uh, in those types of defensemen, you, you want to see, I guess, really, really high-end mobility. That would, that would make him, you know, even more attractive as a prospect and as a, as a, as a young player. Uh, he doesn't have that blazing speed. Right, he he's I'd say pretty agile. He's a smart mover. He reads the game well. Right, this is the thing we always talk about talk about with Kyle Dubas picks. But he's definitely not a burner. And there there was a time I think in the first game against Winnipeg where he basically just got like dusted to the outside by Blake Wheeler, who is himself not incredibly fast anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like okay, well that you know that's a limitation. That's something. But, by the way, as an aside, that I just want to comment on. We talk about players being fast or slow players, and sometimes I worry that that can sound like. The faster player will always beat the slower player in a race, like in any particular puck battle. If you get an extra step on anybody, that rearranges the rankings really quick. The point is, is that if you're fast, you have a better chance of recovering when you don't have that step. Or you have a better chance of winning, you know, a straight contest. But, you know, players who are considered slow will outspeed players who are considered fast when they have momentum going before the other guy. Right, and th- that's also why kind of 
your ability to process the play going on on the ice and position yourself is so important because if you can give yourself that half step with your positioning and with your quick realization of play, maybe you turn quicker than, than the person you're racing. Maybe you um, put yourself in a position where they have to go around you instead of a straight line to the puck, right? That can compensate for foot speed in a lot of scenarios. Right. And that's the strength. If you want the best case scenario for Rasmus Sandin, you're saying his ability to read plays is strong, was scouted strong, has looked strong in the AHL, looked strong in the NHL. He's very good at quickly assessing what is going on and reacting. And that's going to compensate to some extent from the fact that, you know, he's not extraordinary physically by NHL standards. Even that reverse hit that we were talking about, you know, he figured out what Wheeler was going to do and he made him pay for it. And that ability to assess in a split second and figure out what to do is special. And Kyle Dubas in drafting has bet on that time and time again. Sandine is his uh, diamond prospect in that regard. I am certainly positive on him. I don't want to get carried away. I think he's a good passer, especially like he just makes, you know, smart little plays, doesn't make a ton of mistakes, even for a guy who just turned 21. I, you know, he's already an NHL caliber player. The question is, does he go beyond that? I think he'll be a second pairing defenseman at his peak at least. I don't know if he can be more than that or not. One play I want to mention is at the four on four, uh, the four on four goal that John Tavares scored. Uh, last night. So Nienander defends a an odd man rush. And this is a weird kind of play because it, it was a four on four where somehow both teams are trading odd man rushes. Um, but Nienander defends an odd man rush and he gives the puck to Sandine. Sandine's taking the puck up the ice, but he notices Nienander um, on his strong side, on the on the right side wing, and he adjusts his route to give uh, to do two things. One, give Nienander some time to get up the ice. And, and put pressure on the Jets' defense, and to create a better angle for his pass to Nylander. Um, and this also has the side effect of occupying some of the Jets' forwards. So he does that, and it's a very, very small play, and not even like an, an incredibly impressive one. It, it, it's something that happens you know, many, many times a game. But it, it's just a small play where he makes... He, he, he's reading the ice you know, a few steps ahead, right? He can see the, the next logical course of outcome from the play he's going to make. So he gives Nylander, uh, he gives himself a better angle to hit Nylander with the pass. Uh, he slows himself down to give Nylander more time to put himself in a good position. And some poor uh, marking by the Jets essentially leads to a two-on-one with Nylander and Tavares. That's a, that's a great play. A lot of players um, would have perhaps just headed it up to Tavares immediately, who was the na- uh, more obviously open uh, and had there was a more obvious route to passing the puck to him at the time that Sandine had it. Mm-hmm. Right? So... That small kind of delay and, and change of angle ended up creating a, a strong chance for the Leafs. Things like that are what we would hope Sandine can do quite regularly. There's that old saying that good players make the right play, great players make the better play. I don't think Sandine is going to be a great player because I don't think that he has the entire toolkit. But I think that he can get to very good if things go right because... He will sometimes see the better play and be able to make it. And every now and then you'll see something where people will swoon over it. Even if it's just a little play like that, which, you know, it, it took some looking to notice that. I, I do think that there's a lot to be encouraged about while still kind of recognizing that he's a third pair defenseman, 
hasn't played that many games yet this season, is on a third player with Travis Dermott, who, whatever else you'll say about him, we know can probably run a third pair fine. And we should we should give a bit of credit to Dermott, who's now being asked to play as offside. Yes, which is something and, and that has done a good job of it. Yeah, we've anticipated that for a long time. And so far, so good. Um, again, you do feel for Travis Dermott, because there's only so much he can do, right? Um, but anyway, Sandine Dermott, so far, looks like a fun pairing. The questions clouding that are, one, Zach Bogosian is out for four weeks. The starting date of the playoffs in the North Division is still a little unclear because Vancouver had that protracted COVID absence. And it'll probably take them some more time to get to 56 games. Uh, We'll see. But that impacts when will Zach Bogosian be back. If he is back, the Leafs are probably going to want to play him. They have played him as a priority throughout most of the season. But also, Sandin doesn't kill penalties. He's done it in the AHL. He's not done it for any serious length of time ever in the NHL. He hasn't done it yet this year. And Ben Hutton, who the Leafs got as some sort of defensive insurance, does do that. And so you wonder if, okay, when push comes to shove, does Sandin lose his spot in favor of probably Bogosian, but even Hutton, who can do the penalty-killing end of it? And I don't know. I think the the standard coach answer would be that they go with the veterans. They say, stick at it, kid, and we'll see you next year. Um, so I don't know that Sandin is going to end up being a big piece of the playoff picture, even though I've liked what I've seen from him so far, and I think that he could be. I, you know, I, I hope that that's not too much of a downer note, but I, I do think that that's an overarching issue and penalty killing does preoccupy coaches. It does. Um, on the whole, I think it's fair to be encouraged by Sandine, but yeah, let, let's, the, it, I expect to see him play, you know, until Bogosian is healthy, but when Bogosian is healthy, I expect Bogosian to, to take the reins again. Um, in part because it'll also get Dermot back on his stronger side. And, you know, again, most, our most likely playoff opponent is Montreal. That's a heavy cycle team. Maybe you trust Bogosian's physicality more there. Yeah. And Dermot Bogosian has been a perfectly solid third pairing. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Rasmus Sandin next year is going to be a full-time defenseman for this team. And I, I am fine with seeing quite a lot of him at that point. Uh, probably third pair left defense and second power play unit. But if he rises higher, great. I think right. next year we really find out what he can do, or at least start to. And there could be a spot opening up with uh, Dermot perhaps being an expansion draft casualty. Mm-hmm. And so that, that also raises a question that we, we probably won't touch on here because he hasn't appeared, but Timothy Liljegren, who it, it's time for Liljegren to show something next year in the NHL. So Very much so. Yeah. Um, goaltending has always been a source of great discontentment, and it's been up and down. I think you have to say that this season Jack Campbell has been the best goalie on balance. He's I don't think it's arguable. Yeah, I don't even think that it's really all that close. He's had a couple of off nights. He's had also a couple of nights where he was terrific. Uh, on balance, he's been the guy. And again, I hope I'm not leaning in too much to the psychology. And a lot of people in the MSM have talked about this. But it does worry me a little bit that he seems to get so down on himself. After he 
has a rough night or allows a rough goal. And it was reported on in that profile of him at The Athletic that was widely circulated. And I just hope that he's able to sort of reset mentally. And some goalies are very good at just sort of flushing their previous rough performance down the drain and moving forward. And I hope that Jack Campbell can do that. But that sort of speculative stuff aside, he's been the guy. The only question is, Freddie Anderson was playing through injury when he was playing earlier. He looked really rough for a bit. He was not making the extra save for an extended period. And there's a convention in hockey that you don't lose your job due to injury. It offends the sense of fairness that people have in the game, I guess. Uh, understandably so. And so if Freddie Anderson comes back game one, as we expect that he will, I do wonder if he still ends up being the starter just because he's the guy. Maybe with a, a short leash. Maybe with a quick recourse to Jack Campbell if they lose the first game or something like that. But I don't think that it's a given that Campbell gets the, the first game, even though he is probably the best goalie, or at least has been. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I agree with you. In mm. part because, like, if Freddie comes back game one, I mean, he wouldn't have played in how long? Like, months almost. Right. I, I, I think that there's, like, a very good argument to why it should be Jack Campbell. Right, but I, I, think, I think Keith could make it... I think Keith could, you know, go to Campbell without offending the ego of Freddie, just saying, it, it's the playoffs, we need to ease you in, and we can't do that anymore. Right. And I do think that the overall drift of all this has been Freddie Anderson is not going to play on this team next year. And so maybe they're a little bit less sensitive to that concern compared to what I expect. I don't know. Maybe I'm too I'm too set by what I consider conventional hockey brain as to how these decisions think, get think, made. But I think that rule is a rule until it isn't. It is. Yeah, that's fair. Until, until it's more convenient otherwise, right? That, I mean... That's that's the thing. I, I I think there's no room for sentimentality here at this point. You have to play the best guy. I, I do agree that, like, if you ask me what am I going to do, I'm going to play Jack Campbell. Um, and maybe that it'll be just that simple. If Jack Campbell keeps playing well the rest of the way, you know, he had a very good game last night, then maybe that decision gets easier and, and more obvious. If Campbell plays... If Campbell plays at a league average rate the rest of the way, I think it's You his. think it's his? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I would be fine being wrong about this, frankly. I, I do want him in there because, by and large, I've been encouraged by him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think he he's played well. Um, Freddie Anderson has struggled. The thing that maybe preoccupied me about Freddie Anderson, and I'm not even sure what to make of this, is that I felt like he didn't let in that many howlers you know he had a few but he didn't have those catastrophic oh my god that was terrible kind of goals that tracks with his historical stats too he's always been quite good at low danger uh shots Mm -hmm. and he struggled at higher danger shots and you can interpret that in multiple ways now some people have said that high danger save percentage tends to be the most repeatable um type of save percentage when you when you stratify you know shot danger Mm -hmm. And the fact that he was bad at that suggests that, you know, maybe he was never as good as we thought and was kind of overperforming uh, on, on low danger chances that, and that goosed his overall save percentage. 
You can also interpret it as if you build a good defense around uh, around Anderson and insulate him from a lot of those high danger shots, he can help you a lot, um, and he won't kill you. Most importantly, right? So there's different ways to interpret it. For sure, and I have to admit, I do buy the Leafs' defense is notably better this year. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I do think that the improvement is real in the defensive end. And I know that a lot of people have had some fun at Leaf fans' expense for saying, hey, you think every goaltender you get lets you down at some point. Maybe the common element isn't the goaltenders, but the defensive quality of the team in front of them. And I think that that was true up to this year. But I think that there, there are signs that this team is just better at that end. You know, a lot of ways that we can measure it. So, ultimately, I don't know how Freddie Anderson's injury kind of impacted him or if this is just kind of what he is now at his age. Um, I, I'm a little kind of down at how it's ended, and I do think people sometimes blamed him for goals against that that were a little bit harsh, frankly, or, or, or even, you know, deflections that he had no chance on. But the... Yeah, the bottom line comes back around to what we said at the top, which is Jack Campbell has been the better goalie. And and I do agree with you. He should get the start, all being equal. So mm-hmm. we just want to see more good showings out of Jack to maybe put that argument to bed and to encourage us. Uh, David Riddick has come in as an insurance policy. I think he's a fine goalie. He's played like complete garbage with Toronto so far in a couple starts. He hasn't had a great year in general. Did you know David Riddick's check? Uh, I think I knew that. I didn't. I thought he was, like, Canadian or American. Oh, well, we've all learned something today. But I think, you know, I think Riddick is better than this. Like, he, speaking of howlers, he had a couple where you were just like, come on, man, you gotta have that. And there was one that was going wide, and he, didn't he, like, somehow deflected into his own five hole? <laughs> to be honest, I don't think you could do that if you tried. <laughs> like, it's almost impressive. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, yeah, it was it was brutal. I don't even think like if you put out David Riddick again, he's probably not going to be like that too many times just because I, I think that that was the low end of his range. But um, I certainly think that the plan game one is Campbell and Anderson in some order. Riddick is the insurance policy. And then Michael Hutchinson is lurking in the background for when everyone else gets wiped out by a meteor, which I anticipate will happen because I'm full of despair. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think that, uh, you know, just reassure us is basically <laughs> is, is all we want from the goaltending in the last eight games. We don't ask too much. Uh, I had, um, do you want to maybe go over Brooks and Angball and we can finish with yeah. the overall state yeah. of the team? Because that's interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, um, Adam Brooks inside track to a roster spot in the playoffs out of nowhere. So I wrote an article in the offseason when we did our prospect profile, and I it was about me basically saying, okay, Adam Brooks is 24. I've liked him for a long time. I, I, he was sort of one of my pet picks. You and I wrote an article. Yeah, I remember one of, the first, one of the first things we collaborated on is we both, we co- both contributed to an article maybe like a year or two after he was drafted where we ranked him a lot higher in the top 25 than a lot of other people, and we, we contributed to an article about why we did that. Yes, we did. I, I think that was his draft year. I think we, yeah. we basically said, okay, yeah, this guy was drafted as an overager, but he's developed so well, and he annihilated the WHL. Like, he uh, he had 250 points over the course of his last two seasons there. Now, he was older and probably didn't need to be in the WHL, let's be honest. 
But still, 250 is a lot of points. And so he was um, he was lighting the world on fire. But he's had the problem where he's about 5'10". He's not super quick. And so if you're a little small and not all that fast, you're already running uphill trying to make the NHL. And again, he's a smart player. Even though he was picked in the Mark Hunter era, he does feel a lot like a Kyle Dubas pick, I have to tell you. He just seems consistent with the ethos that we've seen from Kyle Dubas since he took over. And at any rate, works hard, you know, developed himself into a better two-way player, has had some struggles with concussions, but kind of surprisingly has started to show himself as maybe a a fourth-line candidate. And I do think that he's probably... He's an interesting fit with Engvall in terms of they have opposite skill sets. Brooks is smaller, not as fast, much smarter offensively, better playmaker. Engvall is enormous, built like a giraffe, quite a good skater, has about as much offensive instinct as I do. So they are kind of two halves of the whole almost in terms of what would you want from a fourth line center. And normally I've just assumed that Engvall is what you get for depth guys. And that's part of the reason why I was sort of writing off Adam Brooks. Finally, I was saying, okay, he's not going to be good enough to make an NHL top six. He's not going to have the skills that NHL coaches want in their bottom six. He is going to be left as a really good AHL player. And maybe he'll go to Europe and have a nice career over there. And yet in this sort of late stage of the season, he stepped in on a line with two older, but still offensively quite gifted players and they've settled in kind of nicely. It's been really interesting. It's, yeah, and I mean, I, the one, I, I don't want to overstate the case here because you look. Brooks has played like five games, I think. Yeah, um, really all against Winnipeg it, because they want to play him against his hometown team. It very well could be. Um, I mean, I know the last two were. Yeah, obviously, um, and you know the numbers. It's five games, so we shouldn't take the numbers that seriously anyways. But the numbers are like not... It's not like he's blowing us away or anything. No, he's <laughs> he, just... He, he just looks pretty uh, good, you know? Yeah, he, he he's a seen-him-good player at this mm-hmm. point. Um, the line with, with him, Spezza, and Thornton was, I think, quite good last night. Uh, they scored, which helps. But they also generated a good amount of chances. And, and a couple chances that didn't show up in XG either. Like They basically sent Spezza in on a, on a partial break and he just he flubbed the puck. Mm-hmm. Didn't result in a shot, but you know that that's actually a very good chance, right? Um, so so, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, Keith has praised him quite a bit, and maybe that's just you know hyping up a young guy who who you, you know you want him playing with confidence. You don't want him feeling like insecure about his spot in the lineup, especially when he's with you know two guys who are he- you know one's headed to the Hall of Fame and one's going to get a few votes at least. Mm-hmm. So. You know, it's it's interesting to see. He is a more natural fit for uh, Spezza and Thornton than than Engvall is in a lot of ways for for the reasons you mentioned. Now, that that Brooks Spezza Thornton line has only been together one game, mm. and we don't know if it's going to continue being together going forward. Uh, but again, again, it's just another option, I suppose. If Felino does end up on on the third line, and that becomes a more defensive, more defensively tilted line, maybe you want to put Brooks on on the fourth with. Spezza and Thornton, um, right? And and I guess uh, you can you can mix and match with Wayne Simmons too, who we haven't mentioned at all, who I, I who I also didn't mention as as part of the third line that has struggled, but I, I should have. 
mm-hmm. um, because you know he, he's been up and down throughout uh, the year as well. He's played, I think, a little bit better recently, and hilariously took Pierre Luc Dubois out of the last you know two minutes of the game last night, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's I guess it's just another option going forward. It's it, it's it's interesting to see. I, I don't have a great read on on Brooks as of yet and how much he he's liked by the coaching staff and the front office. But evidently enough to put Engvall out of the lineup at least for now. Yes, it's it is interesting to me, and it does occur to me that if you're telling Joe Thornton, look. We've got a lot of guys now. We're going to have to put you on the fourth line, which seems like the natural result from all the acquisitions they've made. Maybe you say, okay, but we are at least going to give you someone who knows what to do with the puck when they get it in the offensive zone. And Engvall doesn't. That's all. That's Engvall's big drawback. And I'm sure maybe it's a little frustrating when you're Joe Thornton and you're passing to a guy who doesn't always have the best read on what to do with it. Like, Thornton, Brooks... And Spezza does feel like the kind of line that is going to get a surprise goal every now and then. We've seen them do it, but like they'll keep, they'll have a chance of that. I don't want to get carried away, but you do certainly see the appeal. And it's just not how we've seen fourth lines constructed. Ultimately, I still like Engvall. I like what he brings, and I like that he adds a defensive element that maybe this team doesn't still have a ton of. But it's been cool to see Adam Brooks get a look in after I kind of thought that he wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And, and well, so I'm rooting for him. And and right now, I mean, so the thing is, someone on the current lineup still has to be the odd man out when Hyman returns. And you'd have to say Brooks is still the odds-on favorite to be that guy. Right. It's just a question of who you move over to fourth-line center. But Spezza can probably yeah, do that. I, yeah. yeah, Spezza and Thornton can maybe combine mm-hmm. to, to do that. Um and otherwise, like you know, in terms of wingers who move to center, Engvall that actually kind of strengthens Engvall's case. Engvall's case because you know he's he's certainly not amazing in the dot. In fact, he's quite terrible at it. But you probably trust him there more than uh, than other wingers on the Leafs. Yeah, you do wonder if it's it's again it's one of those things where it's injury insurance when the going gets tough. When you want a new look, when you've had an off night in the playoffs, and you think I got to change something up. Maybe you shuffle them in, but it's certainly, it's more of a lease on a NHL job than Brooks seemed to have a month ago. So very, very true. Yeah, something to keep an eye on. And this brings us home to how good is this team really? Which is just the general point of ever watching the team when it's not actively in a, in a dogfight for a playoff spot is just, are they shaping like we expected, and we've talked almost every episode, but we talk about how are they comparing to the very best teams. And at the start of the season, I said, there's a class of four teams, Tampa, Colorado, Boston, Vegas. Boston looks to be slipping out of that tier. And by looks to be, I mean, I'm not putting them there anymore. I think, you know, Tampa scuffled a bit, but I trust them to get it together when the playoffs come especially because they had and they're also getting Nikita exactly. Kucherov back and so yeah I'm not going to uh to consider them anything but a serious cup contender and then Colorado has just been annihilating people right I, I wonder if you almost put Colorado in it I feel like I put Colorado and Tampa in a tier of their own Colorado for what they've done in the regular season Tampa as respect for what I think they have what they have done not what I think they've done what they have done in years past mm-hmm. and for what I think they can still do 
That's actually where I was going with it. I'm, I now consider the top tier of the league those two teams. They're the odds-on favorites to win the East and the West, respectively. And then there's a good group after that with, you know, the Vegas Golden Knights, the New York Islanders are pretty clearly there, the Carolina Hurricanes, maybe Washington. And I think the Leafs are legitimately in that group. Yeah. And at their best, they can claim to be uh, on top of it. I, I really do. Now, that's more or less where I would put them. Yeah. And that's that's an improvement. That's more than I thought of them before. It's also partly because I keep thinking the power play can't be this bad. And it's it's been pretty rough for long enough that now it's sort of, okay, it's pretty clear that there are things that are wrong with it. We talked about it last episode, so I won't rehash them too much. But uh, Scott Wheeler had a, a good article just looking at what's going on. There are a lot of stuff about how static it is how predictable the zone entry plan is, which are things that uh, I think we noticed. And then he, he talked a bit about Morgan Riley being a bit of a problem at the top of the zone, which was more surprising to me because Riley's been a part of several power play units that have been awesome. And yet, you know, now it's not working and it doesn't look like anyone's doing their job all that well. Um, and so maybe the case is, give it to the next best power play guy who might even be Rasmus Sandin at this point. Um, but that aside, assuming they can figure that out and get back to some level of competence with the power play, and assuming that the goaltending holds up to some degree, this is a really good team. And I would bet on them to win the first two rounds. So... Yeah, I like. I mm-hmm. just want to see in the last eight games, how were those two problem spots coming together? And is this team sustaining the high caliber of 5v5 play that we've seen in the last couple of months? Because if so, look out. They're scary. The, tra- the tragedy of the NHL playoffs is that this could just completely not matter, right? Yeah, goaltending variance. Everything that we've said uh, in the course of a playoff series can be totally submerged by PDO and not matter. But... Yeah, I mean, I suppose that uh, I'm in a more positive spot than I've been on this team at some points. I've just liked what I, they've done. I agree. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I think I think it's a genuinely pretty quality team, and I think um, a lot of the moves that Dubas has made have been somewhat vindicated by this year, mm-hmm. right? There were questions about Sheldon Keefe heading into this year, mm-hmm. right? And and there still are. I'm not declaring him the next iteration of Scotty Bowman. But you have to say, you know, he's helmed a good Leafs team, a team that looks the way we have expected them to look for years. And, you know, we, we wanted this team to be a top five team. And under Mike Babcock, that never happened. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, we say in this spot, we need to stop comparing everything to Mike Babcock and New Lamorello. But, you know, the fact is, the Leafs were a good, not great team under Babcock very long. And this year, they, it looks like they're possibly taking a step forward into being an actual great team. Now, this is all complicated by, by the North Division and the fact that we have literally no data on how the Leafs stack up outside of it. Yes, we got a question when we solicited pod topics a while back saying, how do you think the Leafs compare to, you know, Tampa and Boston and the, the old gang in the Atlantic Division? And it's very tough to say, obviously, because you never play outside this North Division. And I think the, the North Division being weak has become a bit of a meme, but it is a weak division. It doesn't have... 
a great team in it besides Toronto. Everyone else, I think, is pretty flawed. So it can be hard to gauge, but I, I think... I think Toronto is better than Boston at this point. I do genuinely believe that. Just because Boston's defense has really been hollowed out, and they still have one of the most terrifying lines in hockey, but their their forward depth is not as great as it once was. And So much of how you're going to judge the Leafs versus any non-North team is just based on your priors. Yes, and that's of, absolutely you know, true. How did you view them before the start of the year? Yeah, and so I'm, I'm going a lot off just Boston hasn't been as good as I thought they ought to be, but they're still good. Um, still, though, good signs. So, you know, we're hoping for kind of a, a soft landing into the playoffs, and if the Leafs can just hold on to that first seed, which they should, they really just have to play about 500 the rest of the way, and they should have it. Uh, so it'll just be a matter of, are they rounding into form, and what are they going to do in the playoffs, which is really the only time that matters for this team. That's where they'll be judged, and that's where we're going to find out. Right. All the positivity that we have can be, can be wiped out in four games very quickly. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the, the beauty and the tragedy of the NHL playoffs. Yep. And we've all accepted it because we watched the sports, so here we go. <laughs> yeah so with that cheery thought uh i'd like to thank you guys all for listening you can catch all of mine and fuleman's work at pensionpanpuppets.com you can also follow us on twitter at rv and at fuleman we'll see you next week 